Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, April 26th, and today I'll be speaking with Bill Cohan about Elon Musk buying Twitter. Yes, it's happening. It's one of the biggest media and tech stories of all time, and Bill has been right about it all along. And later on in the show, Julia Yaffe stops by to give us the latest on her specialty, Russia and Ukraine. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Twitter Tuesday, everybody. By now, you have obviously heard and digested the news that Elon Musk is buying Twitter. It's happening. And you've probably read a lot of the snap takes and the absolutist tweets from people on the left and the right about why this is either good or evil. (laughs) Uh, But I'm joined right now by Bill Cohan, who's been not only covering this pretty deeply for the last few weeks, but also with a lot of insight. And and Bill, you predicted that this was probably going to have the momentum and and come through and happen. And it did. Uh, Are you surprised that this went down? No, Peter. Well, first, thank you for having me. And no, obviously, I'm not surprised uh, that it happened and it happened just this way. I thought there might be another step or two, you know, i.e. the board saying today that his offer was inadequate, you know, either forcing him to think about raising his offer or putting a tender, you know, filing a tender offer, launching a tender offer. Obviously, if he launched a tender offer, that would not be good for the board. So I suspect they just skipped that step and, and uh, you know, realizing how weak, pathetically weak their hand was. Right from the outset, they had a very pathetically weak hand and they played it poorly. So uh, when you have a pathetically weak hand and you play it poorly, as they did, you end up with, you know, a deal in pretty quick fashion, especially once he pulled together his financing, which, um, you know, you got to hand it to him. He, he pulled it together. When you say it was a pathetically weak hand, and, and we should note the board was totally unanimous, like everyone just went along with this. Uh, was it a weak hand because Twitter isn't really worth $44 billion and that's what Elon was offering? Why, why, was, it, why was it weak? There were about three or four reasons why it was weak. One, the Twitter board has a pathetic amount of stock ownership. Uh, if you take out Jack Dorsey, who had about two and a quarter percent of the company, and he was leaving the board in May, the rest of the board had 0.2%. So their claim to you know represent shareholder interests was hollow and, and meaningless. That's number one. Now, number two, there were no other buyers. So you know, when there are no other buyers and somebody comes along and offers a 38% premium to where the stock had been trading before he made his announcement and it's all in cash and he's got his financing lined up, uh, which he uh, uh, perfected uh, last week, you know, the board is kind of checkmated. I could see this uh, pretty quickly, having been a former M&A banker, having, even though, you know, I'm very... Uh, rusty, but it's like riding a bicycle. Uh, once you endure things like uh, being an M&A banker, then you really never forget it. Uh, maybe some <laughs> subtleties here and there, but the basic gist you don't forget. And, um, you know, I knew what it would take for Goldman and J.P. Morgan to give a fairness opinion. You know, the biggest scam here of all, frankly, 
is, you know, whatever fees that Goldman and JP Morgan haul out of this thing representing Twitter. I mean, what did they do? Two weeks worth of work. And who knows? They'll probably on a $44 billion deal, they'll probably get paid, you know, 50 million each, you know, kind of boggles <laughs> the mind. They, they, they didn't come up with a, uh, another buyer. It was obviously a fair a price. Uh, they didn't really do any negotiating. I mean, that was the easiest 50 million that they ever made. So right now, you know, as we're taping this, at least Twitter stocks around like $51 a share, which is, is about, about as good as it's been since last November, about as high as it's been since last November, excuse me. So if you're just like a rando who owns Twitter stock, like what happens now? What happens is there's the, you know, the merger agreement, I guess, has been signed. And uh-huh. then uh, at some point, Elon will um, start a tender offer, I would imagine, whereby he tenders for uh, the stock, the 91.9% of the stock that he, do- that he doesn't already own. He owns 9.1%. And uh, then people will tender their stock. They'll close uh, the tender offer and he'll pay them their fifty uh, was it $54.60 okay. in cash and they'll put it in their bank account. There are lots of Elon Musk critics on Twitter, uh, lots of people on the left specifically lamenting this decision, saying that, you know, he's going to ruin Twitter, uh, not mentioning the fact that Twitter is already kind of a hellscape. Um, But he put out a statement, Elon Musk, saying, I want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots and authenticating all humans. And Elon Musk, as you and I have discussed a lot, is a big free speech advocate. It seems more likely than not that he would put Donald Trump back on Twitter. But I mean, is it possible that, you know, he could improve Twitter in a lot of ways? I mean, this or, or is this just like he's going to drive it into the ground in your mind? No, he could absolutely improve it as he says he wants to. You know, he's, he's going to have to walk a bit of a fine line. I mean, if he does a number of the things that he said he's going to do, like, for instance, if he takes ads off the platform, then I don't know how, you know, he'll get any kind of return on his $44 billion. Now, you know, he is the world's richest guy. He's worth $275 billion. Maybe he doesn't care if he loses money on Twitter deal and, you know, it feels like it's really critical to enhance it by removing ads. But say he leaves, you know, ads in place. Now, then he's sort of walking a fine line between how many of these ogres he lets back on, you know, in the name of free speech. Uh, you know, I think the progressives on the left always love to whine, do a lot of whining. And so they think <laughs> that the world is coming to an end. I don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, Look, why people endure Twitter to begin with, and by the way, it's not that many people. It's basically just a lot of journalists and whiners and bots and stuff. So, I mean, I think he's got to preserve that as best he can. You know, if he brings Trump back and some of the other ogres, then he could be pissing people off and he could lose the debate. I mean, why do people come to Twitter? I mean, I think journalists come to Twitter to get information, you know, in a rapid uh, way, some of it's disinformation, and other people come to have like you know the town square and have a debate. And you know if you bring back the ogres and the abusers under the banner of free speech, and you know the other part of the equation goes away, then you've defeated, I think, what you hope to accomplish. So I think 
the line he has to walk is finer than uh, he's allowed so far. I think he's certainly smart enough. Frankly, I don't know who he's going to get to run this thing. I can't imagine, you know, he's already CEO of three companies. I mean, he obviously is brilliant and the real world's richest guy, but I think at some point he's got to find somebody to run this thing that's not him. All right, Bill, thank you for your insight as always. Are you going to quit Twitter? You know, I, again, <laughs> I don't like to engage on it very much, but I do enjoy looking at it as a journalist. So if that aspect of it continues, I will continue to use it. But if it blows up, then I'll be, I'll be more than happy to give it up, believe me. <laughs> you know, I don't really like it, but I find it amusing when I got nothing else to do. I got a, a notification from Twitter the other day that said, congratulations for being on Twitter for 15 years. Com yeah. Would you like to compose a tweet? <laughs> I was like, fuck no. <laughs> yeah, boy, 15 years. That's impressive. Yeah, Early well, adopter. Pretty dark, actually. All right, Bill, thanks so much. Okay. We will talk to you, you for the next iteration of, of uh, all the Elon news. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Julia Yaffe on her beat right now. Thanks, Peter. On Sunday, it was exactly two months since Russia invaded. And if you recall back then, everybody expected it to take, you know, maybe a week tops for Russia to conquer Ukraine. And here we are two months later. Ukraine is still fighting. It has forced Russia to readjust its immediate war aims. Over the weekend, we saw that the Russians said, these are our new aims. Basically, we want to make Ukraine a landlocked country by seizing not just the coastline of the Azov Sea, but also Odessa, Mykolaiv, and link up to Transnistria, which is a Russian-fomented separatist conflict basically sandwiched between Ukraine and Moldova. On one hand, that's a much more scaled back war aim. On the other hand, it threatens to bring in a third country into this war and uh, threatens to cut Ukraine off from the sea and threatens to take over Odessa, which was a gem of the Russian Empire and of the Soviet Empire. We also saw... Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin show up in Kyiv on Sunday and Monday, where they made some news by saying that the U.S. Embassy is going to reopen in Kyiv, which is quite a show of defiance. If you recall, the embassy was shut down in February. You know, just the very fact of an American Secretary of State and an American Defense Secretary walking around Kyiv. It was also a show of defiance, right? Uh, it, it showed that they weren't afraid of the danger, though, of course, they were too afraid to send Joe Biden. And that, you know, the city remains firmly in Ukrainian control. What really struck me was Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin saying that he wanted a weakened Russia. And for me, as somebody who has watched a lot of Russian state TV, where you see this kind of feedback loop between what Vladimir Putin says and then what the media says. Um, there was an amazing Financial Times piece that came out 
by Henry Foy and Max Seddon, who have been doing absolutely essential reporting on this conflict, uh, came out on Sunday and it said that basically Putin doesn't want to negotiate anymore. He wants to seize as much territory as he wants. And in part, that is because he believes the stuff that he sees on Russian state TVs, which is what we've all kind of known and suspected for a few years now. Uh, And to think that it's not just kind of a top-down stream of disinformation from the Kremlin to the Russian population, but that it's also leaking back and infecting the minds of leaders of the Russian Federation and Putin himself. It, of course, made me think of Biggie's 10 crack commandments. And I believe rule five was never get high on your own supply. (laughs) And, you know, uh, this is a violation of a pretty cardinal rule. Vladimir Putin has always been talking about how the West just wanted to weaken and destroy Russia. And it didn't matter how many times the Americans or the British or the Europeans said, no, actually, we want a strong and prosperous and democratic Russia he didn't believe it. He believed that the reason they wanted a democratic Russia is because he believes democracies are weaker and that this was all just a ploy to bring Russia back to its knees the way it had been in the 1990s. And this was a moment when Lloyd Austin said that I thought, wow, Putin somewhere in the Kremlin or in whatever bunker he's in is going, I knew it. I fucking knew it. So much of this whole war has been about Putin making his most paranoid delusions come true. He was worried that Ukraine was drifting inexorably away from Russia. Well, he has made Ukraine basically an enemy for the next at least two, three generations. There's no way Ukrainians will ever forgive this. So he took what was a once very friendly country, what used to be the closest country to Russia, both geographically, culturally, historically, and made them enemies. And he made the West into the enemy that he always wanted it to be. Before, they were just adversaries. Even before that, there was a hope that there would be some kind of cooperation and uh, detente. Remember all the resets and all the, how every administration wanted, before the Biden administration, wanted to find some kind of common language. That's all gone only because of Putin's own actions. And I mean, this is the problem of having a massive, powerful nuclear armed autocracy is that they can do a tremendous amount of damage and the leaders of them have the power to make their paranoid delusions a reality. And I think that's really scary for those of us in the rest of the world who um, have a totally different view of things. Uh, That's all I have for today. If you haven't read my newsletter from Thursday evening last week, please do so. The piece is called Mothers for Putin. It's on puck.news. And check your inbox Tuesday night for my next newsletter. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 